Sometimes as a preacher, I choose a sermon title, and uh, I arrive in church and look at it, and I realize it might sound differently than I intended. I still have many things to say to you. These are the words of Jesus, let me assure you, and not the words of your preacher. Let us pray. Dear God, this morning we've already felt in a powerful way your Holy Spirit moving among us as we've lifted our hearts to you. We pray now for the mind of Christ and for the eyes to read the Bible, to read our world, and to read our own lives as he taught us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a teacher tell you something that you knew was very important, but you didn't understand it? And so you filed it away later on, and only later on you finally began to understand what it really meant. Well, something like that is happening in John 16:12 when Jesus at the last supper looks at his disciples and says to them, "I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now." When the Spirit of truth comes, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Friends, what do you think some of those things are that Jesus was talking about? Well, for the early church, welcoming Gentiles into the family of God is most surely one of those things. And one of the key stories that leads to this profound change is found in our scriptures today in Acts 10, and I invite you to turn to this passage if you'd like to follow along. Acts chapter 10. For Peter, it starts in verse 9. And it all begins at lunchtime. When Peter goes up on the roof and begins to pray, and then he falls into a trance. The heavens suddenly open up and a voice commands him now to eat every unclean animal and bird forbidden in Leviticus 11. Pigs, camels, you heard them this morning. Badgers, buzzards, buzzards, ostriches, vultures, crocodiles, and rabbits. Now, Peter must think that his growling stomach, it's lunchtime after all, must be making him hallucinate because this voice is telling him very directly to disobey Scripture. 
He's being told to cross a dietary boundary that has been shaping and protecting his people's God-given identity for centuries. And so when this voice tells him three times to go eat, Peter's response three times is, No way, Lord. No way. No way. And quoting Scripture, probably Leviticus 11, he says that he's never eaten anything profane or unclean. Now you have to notice the irony here. Peter is quoting the Bible to God. Something else very fascinating is happening here. How many times does God tell Peter to go eat? Three times, right? Not once, not twice, but three times. Now, tell me if you're Peter, where else have things happened in his life three times? Well, there's his denial of Jesus by that charcoal fire three times. And there's also at another charcoal fire beside a lake, Jesus forgiving him and commissioning him three times to go feed his sheep. And so we have to believe that after Peter has heard this three times from God, he is now all ears. And it's exactly right at this moment that the emissaries of Cornelius show up down below. And the Holy Spirit now guides Peter to cross yet another boundary, not just dietary now, but the dividing wall, the great dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. According to Peter in verse 28, this wall of hostility makes it unacceptable for any good Jew ever to associate with or to visit a Gentile. Now, we often read this, we've heard this story a million times, and we forget that for Peter, Cornelius is not your run-of-the-mill, ordinary, unclean Gentile. Who is he? He's an officer in Rome's military headquarters up in Caesarea. He's a hated enemy of the empire that has just conquered, well, not just, but has conquered Jerusalem, has desecrated their temple, and polluted their land with pagan practices. And worst of all, Cornelius belongs to the regime that has just recently killed Jesus. Peter's beloved friend and Lord. 
And so we can only imagine, we can only imagine Peter's inner turmoil as he makes this two-day journey up to Caesarea. Now, upon his arrival, Peter finds Cornelius eagerly awaiting him with all of his relatives and his friends. It must have been quite a, quite a reception. And in verse 33, Cornelius says this to Peter. I love this. We're all here to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Wow, that's a preacher's dream. Nobody's ever said that to me. We're here to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. And what Peter feels commanded to preach to these Romans is a very, very edgy sermon about Jesus. Verse 36, how Jesus came preaching the deep peace that can only come from God instead of any other earthly power. How Jesus is Lord of all. Who does that include? Caesar? Caesarea? How Jesus came doing good and setting free all held captive by the powers of evil. How they, read you Romans, killed him. But then how God raised him on the third day, triumphing over every earthly power, every imperial power, And then in verse 43, how all the prophets in the Hebrew Bible have been testifying and getting the world ready for this Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the culmination, the Mount Everest, of God's salvation story. He is God's living Word. The one who radically re-clarifies who God is and how God wants us to live and to love. And everyone who believes in Him, and in Hebrew and Greek, to believe in means to follow also. Everybody who follows Him will receive forgiveness through His name. Now, I imagine that this is maybe where Peter hopes that his Gentile audience will be so offended, so filled with rage that they'll send him packing happily back down to Joppa. But instead, they are not filled with rage. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, praising God joyfully crying out in tongues. And Peter and his Jewish friends, I believe right at this moment, are cut to the heart. 
and are finally able to see these Gentiles with the eyes of Jesus. And in this moment of crystal clarity, they now do what they know to be the right thing, even though later on it's going to cost them a whole lot. They baptize all these Gentiles right then and there. In whose name? In the name of Jesus. And then to top it off, verse 48, they do what no good Jews would ever do. They stay in Cornelius' home a few more days. And so, friends, I think what we have here is not only the story about the conversion of Cornelius, but here is the story as well about the conversion of Peter. Because now he gets out of the way so that Christ's love can flow freely to these Gentiles just as it has flowed already freely to him. But just as in Vegas, what happens in Caesarea doesn't stay there, does it? And soon the whole church in Jerusalem is in an uproar about what's happened. And many insist that these Gentiles must first become Jews must be circumcised before they can fully enter into the family of God. And the people who are saying this have the much stronger case in the Bible by far. The folks who say this have the much stronger biblical case. But still, amazingly, guided by the Holy Spirit, the early church comes to discern that what God wants them to do is to welcome everyone who turns to Jesus, circumcised or not. I believe what is happening in this story is that the early church is slowly learning how to read the Bible and to read their world with the eyes of Jesus. And you really can't overstate what an earth-shaking change this is. It's huge, folks. It requires these Jewish believers to revise their theology their code of ethics, and their social practices. It means setting aside a whole lifetime of learned revulsion and superiority and hostility toward Gentiles. It means setting aside key parts of the Bible about circumcision and food and ethnic Purity. But it's because these folks learned how to see the world with the eyes of Jesus that all of us Gentiles are in God's family today. Amen?
Now, I want to make sure that we don't miss a crucial detail in our story today. Friends, what is Cornelius doing when he's told to go send for Peter? What's he up to? He's praying. Look at verses 2 and 30. He's connecting with God. And what is Peter doing when the friends of Cornelius show up down at the gate? Verse 9, he too is praying, connecting with God. Now, I want you to imagine what would have happened in this story if Cornelius and Peter were not connecting with God in this way. Imagine Cornelius' friend, friends showing up to an unconnected Peter. Do you think he would have opened the door to them? Imagine Peter knocking on the door of an unconnected Cornelius. Do you think the Roman would have opened his home and invited him to say everything that God had told him to say? But thanks be to God, Peter and Cornelius are both connected with God. And prayer now allows the love of Christ to flow back and forth between Cornelius and Peter unhindered. You know, when I was out in Illinois... Our former conference minister, Chuck Newfeld, my mentor as well, he would always have a question when a congregation or an individual would come to him with an area of disagreement or contention. He would always ask them, have you been praying about this? Not just on the way, Lord, help me have a good conversation with Chuck. No, have you been praying? Have you been in God's presence about this matter? Because Chuck knew from long experience that God's deepest intentions for us can only be discovered by those whose hearts have been softened by prayer. Two days ago, or two Sundays ago, seems just like yesterday, I shared a story about how stereograms like this one were all the rage when I lived in China. Now, do I have this upside down or? There we go. Believe it or not. By refocusing your eyes, a 3D picture suddenly rises up off the page. And, of course, some of you know that there's a bit of humor in the image or the stereogram that I sent to all of you because in this image is a picture from Leviticus 11.9, one of the unclean animals. And what is that one unclean animal? The rabbit. rabbit. 
All right. Now, two Sundays ago, I forgot to tell you the most important part of my story. You see, in China, just like some of you who are really struggling to see that picture, I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out how to refocus my eyes. But finally, the dear daughter, 10-year-old daughter of our closest Chinese friends, sat me down and taught me how to refocus my eyes. And what a thrill it was when those images suddenly jumped off the page for me. In the same way, learning how to read the Bible with the eyes of Jesus takes practice. It takes time. Maybe even a lifetime. And even today, our Lord still has many things He wants to say to us. And as our community reads the Bible together with His eyes, the Holy Spirit will come to guide us into all truth. And as Anabaptist Christians, we believe that God has spoken most clearly in Jesus Christ. And just as we seek to acknowledge His Lordship over all of our lives, we also seek to acknowledge His Lordship over Scripture, over the Bible, and how we read it. Amen.